You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Chapter 1 is where we're going to be today as we continue in our series that we've entitled Resilient. And the whole idea behind this series is that more than we want to be a church that is filled with people on a Sunday morning, we want to be a church that's filled with resilient disciples and with men and women who are able to not only survive but thrive in the midst of the chaos of this world that we are living in. And what we have said so far in this series is that to be a resilient disciple really is an uphill battle. And so I think we can put the stats on the screen for you. Um, Barna Research recently uh, polled those between the ages of 18 to 29 years of age who actually grew up in the church. And what they discovered is very sobering. Um, They found that of those between the ages of 18 to 29 who grew up in the church, 22% are prodigals. That means they have completely walked away from the faith. So think about that. Their parents... Grew, I mean, they grew up in the home, their parents talking about Jesus. They went to Sunday mornings, probably Sunday night, Wednesday night, if they were anything like me in that world. They did Bible studies, all of that, went to church camp, and they have, 22% have completely rejected, turned away from Jesus. 33% are nomads. That means they're not a part of a church. They're not practicing the way of Jesus. They would still say they're Christians. They're just not really practicing it. Uh, 35% are what they identified as habitual church goers, people who just sit in a seat, They'll nod, you know, maybe say amen every now and then. Uh, but other than that, like they're not changing whatsoever. They're not growing. And then only 10% they identified as resilient disciples. And these are men and women who are being transformed more into the likeness of Jesus and they're transforming the world around them. And so to run after what we've been saying, to run after the stuff we're talking about really is weird. Um, it really is odd. Like if you decide you want to try to live as a resilient disciple, you can't do this and be in the in crowd. Does that make sense? Like, please hear that. Because I know we all think we've graduated beyond high school where it's like, dude, I don't even care if I sit at the cool kid table anymore. The reality is we all still want to. We all want to be liked. We all want to be popular. We all want to, to kind of fit in with society. And you just need to know to be a resilient disciple, you're not going to be able to do that. Um, this is, in the words of Jesus, walking a narrow path, though it'll be hard, though it'll be difficult, in the end, his promise is that it will lead to life and life abundantly. And so because this is true, the question we've been asking is, what does it mean to be a resilient disciple? And we can put this on the screen for you, I believe, but in the first week we said to be a resilient disciple is to be someone who practices the way of Jesus. Um, I might not have sent you this slide, actually, now that I think about it. So, uh, But the second week we said to be a resilient disciple is to be someone rooted in scriptures to allow um, what God says in the Bible to shape our entire worldview, how we handle our finances, money, relationships, etc. The third week we said to be a resilient disciple is to be someone empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so think about that. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is inside of you. Now, I don't know if you saw the lightning storm last night. My, my daughter was amazed by it. She was watching it. And I just said to her at some point, I thought, I thought about that passage in Job that says that God holds lightning in his hand. And I thought, how amazing is it? And I told Nora this, that, that the God who holds lightning in his hand and as powerful as lightning is, he's put an even greater power source inside of us through his spirit. And so we talked in the third week about living a spirit empowered life. In the fourth week, we talked about um, how to be a resilient disciple is to be given to compassionate mission. That is, we want to be a church that seeks 
after the last Elise and the loss of society. Um, last week, Robert came up and he talked about how to be a resilient disciple is to be given to radical generosity. That means we show up not with this posture of, hey, what can you do for me? But what can I do for you? It's a totally different posture in how most people view the church. Most people, we go and we, we look and we're like, let's see, does this church offer more of a buffet for me than that church? And we say, man, we want to reject that mentality. We want to be people who partner together with God and we live a radically generous life. And this week, as we continue our series, what we're going to discover is that if we're going to be resilient disciples, we must be a people who are committed to what we call abundant simplicity. And in just a moment, I'm going to unpack that for you. But before we do, I just want to pray for us again um, before we dive into this. So, so let's just pray one more time. Father, thank you so much for each person who is here. Um, you love each and every single person who is watching online and sitting in this seat more than they could ever fathom or imagine. Uh, you see them. They are not lost uh, beyond your sight. You have been very much acquainted with every detail of their life, even though I don't know what all they're going through right now. You do. And so I just pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that you would take this message and you would just do whatever you need to do in the moment to minister to each person in a very unique um, and special and profound way today. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. How many of you feel like you have plenty of margin in your life? Margin has been defined as the space between your load and your limits. With that said, how many of you feel like you have plenty of space just to breathe? And therefore, as a result, you live as this happy, non-anxious, kind, flexible, and loving presence who is open to interruptions. How many of you would say, like, that is definitely me? Let me see a show of hands. Yeah, Randy is one. I kind of expected Randy would be in that. Yeah, the rest of us, not so much. Um, just so you know, like... I am, yeah. Good job, Randy. You probably actually should be teaching this instead of me. Um, you know, this past week to prepare for my message, I was thinking about what I wanted to say, and I ran across this book. It's actually entitled Margin. Um, it's written by a physician, Richard Swenson, and he says in his book, basically, that the widespread breakdown of uh, emotional, relational, and physical health is all rooted in what he calls a marginless life. And this is the opening line from his book. Can we put this on the screen? He says this, the conditions of modern day living devour margin. If you are homeless, we send you to a shelter. If you are penniless, we offer you food stamps. If you are breathless, we connect you to oxygen. If you are marginless, we give you yet one more thing to do. He goes on, Marginless is fatigue, margin is energy, marginless is red ink, margin is black ink, marginless is hurry, margin is calm, marginless is anxiety, margin is security, marginless is our culture, margin is counterculture, marginless is the disease of the new millennia, and margin is its cure. Swenson goes on in his book, if you're interested in reading it, and he lists 20 different categories of overload that leads to burnout. We can put some of these on the screen for you. He says in our culture right now, we have what he calls activity overload. So it's the idea of we just have activity after activity after activity. We're running from one thing to the next. We have change overload. So this is the idea, whether it's um, in politics or, you know, facts about COVID-19 or technology, things are always changing very quickly and it overwhelms us. There's choice overload. So this is Ohana menu on repeat, right? So you walk up and you're like, I just want a snow cone. And there's 75 million options. You don't even know where to start. Um, that's the way we live most of our lives. There's choices everywhere. 
um, there's commitment overload. And so because we are afraid of not meeting, uh, or because we're basically afraid of the disapproval of others, we will say yes to too much stuff. Uh, we'll commit to too many things. And therefore, because of that, we will end up having to break our commitments, right? Uh, we'll end up having to shoot that sneaky text or we'll ghost on people or all together. Can we go back on the screen? Because I don't have it on my, there we are. Yeah. So after uh, commitment overload, we have uh, debt overload. We, more than any other generation, are carrying debt on our shoulders. Uh, we have a media overload. And so I want you to think about this. There was a time and a day where if you wanted to watch a movie, you either had to go to the theaters and watch it, or you would just wait until it came on cable, right? Or I guess you would go to Parker Video and rent it or whatever else. Now you can pretty much watch anything you want, anytime you want. And I found out this past week, Netflix currently has 36,000 hours of content on Netflix. That means if you wanted to sit down in one setting, watch everything on Netflix, it would take you four years to do it. Four years nonstop. Right. That's why, like, we feel that anxiety when you're watching, you know, something and someone's like, oh, have you seen the new series? You're like, no, I haven't even finished the one that I'm in. But it's like, oh, you got to watch this new series. Like, it was just, it's always coming at us. YouTube, I saw a stat this past week that said that they upload 300 hours of video every minute. 300 hours every minute. So you have Netflix, you have YouTube, you have Instagram, you have Facebook. I mean, we are just overloaded with media that is coming our way. And then also there is this expectation overload. So now more than ever, we have this expectations um, that are before us, uh, really, whether it's from our peers or our parents, social media. And then I would say there is an information overload. Um, we have uh, shared this before, but think about this. A single edition of the New York Times contains more information than the average person in the 17th century would have consumed in their entire lifetime. Hear that again. A single edition of the New York Times contains more information than the average person in the 17th century would have consumed in their entire lifetime. So no wonder we're overwhelmed. And again, that's just a sample. Swenson lists 20 different categories of overload, which eliminates margin in our life, which he goes on to say wrecks our minds and our bodies. But here's what else. Not only does it wreck our mind and our bodies, but as you see on the screen, and this is what we're most concerned about. A life without margin literally is incompatible with the way of Jesus and his kingdom. Because when you live a life without margin, you literally, think about this, you sabotage your capacity to receive and give love. You, you sabotage your capacity to receive and give love in relationship with God and with others. Which then as a result does lead to this breakdown emotionally, physically, relationally. It leads to, to shame and loneliness and burnout and all of that other good stuff. So that being said, um, because that is true, um, because if we're going to be resilient disciples, we have to learn to live with margin. Here's what I want to do. I just want to spend a little bit of time diving into scripture and seeing what God says about the importance of embracing limitations in your life. And so if you have a Bible, look with me in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26. I'm reading from the NIV translation, and I know if you grew up in the church, this is a very familiar story to you, but I want you to hopefully look at it from a little bit different angle today. Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now skip down with me to Genesis 2. Verse 4, which by the way, Genesis 2 is just a totally, it's just a different account of the same story. If it's ever confused you, I'm like, why are they saying the same thing? Genesis 2 verse 4, this is the account of the heavens 
and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, or your translation might say a a living soul. Um, Which, by the way, anybody know what a soul is? A soul is not the immaterial part of you. The soul is the part that holds everything together. The soul is the part that holds together your mind, your body, your heart, your will, everything, your feelings, okay? So that's the part that God made when he breathed into us. And in verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east and Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. Now, um, look with me in Genesis chapter 3. Go down to Genesis chapter 3. Last place we will look together, uh, starting in verse 1. Um, at this point, everything is beautiful. It's rhythmic. It's as it should be. Adam and Eve are, are, are naked and without shame, and they're in a great relationship with God and one another and the earth. But then look what happens. You're all familiar with this. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the snake was more crafty than any other of uh, any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the snake, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and she ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were open and the story goes on. Now, lots in there we could unpack, but for our purposes today, here's just all I want you to see. Notice how in this story, Adam and Eve, who are a stand-in for all of humanity, notice they are made in the image of God and they are made from dust. Which means, and should be a reminder to all of us, that as humans, we are all made with an incredible potential and we're made with an incredible amount of limitations. We are made, yes, in the image of God. That means that you and I have the DNA of God coursing through our veins. In Genesis 1, it says that literally you were made by God to rule creation under his rulership. So you have a ton of potential. But again, we are made from dust, which means, guess what? We get sick. We die. Right? Like, like from, in the words of Solomon, like in Ecclesiastes, from dust we have come and dust we will return. And so we have potential limitations. And here's the thing, in the church, I think we talk a lot about the potential. And rightly so. Like we have a lot of sermons on reach your God-given potential. Be the man. Be the woman God created you to be. But you often don't hear messages about limitations. And there are many limitations we all have. For example, I think we can put them on the screen for you. We are limited when it comes to our body. Unlike God, who is omnipresent, you can only be in one place at one time, no matter how hard you try. And like I said, we all get sick and we eventually die. Uh, We're limited in our mind. Um, No matter what school you went to, no matter what you made on the ACT, you don't know everything. And I don't know everything, as my wife sometimes has to remind me. Um, We're all limited when it comes to our gifting. Just look around. You're always going to find somebody who's smarter than you, more athletic than you, faster than you, right? I mean, better, more musically talented than you. We're all limited when it comes to personality. 
And we all have some personality flaws, right? Um, and sometimes it's not even flaws. Sometimes it's just, it's just, it's a good personality, but with every personality, there's kind of a good side and a shadow side. And so, for example, if you're an introvert, like, that's beautiful. But introverts have to take people in very small doses or they burn out, right? Some of you in here are kind of like me. I can be given over to melancholy. Like that can be a social limitation. Um, we are limited when it comes to our family of origin. I was talking with a woman in our church just two weeks ago, and she was saying how when she got married, she said the kind of the image in her mind is, I was put in a garden with no tools. My parents didn't tell me how to be a godly wife. They didn't tell me how to be a, a godly mother. They didn't tell me what does a good marriage look like. And so basically, like, right, because of a family of origin, she has limitations. And that's true of all of us to some extent. And we're also, some of us are, are we're experiencing limitations because of the season of life that we're in. If you have small children, that takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of work to care for kids. Some of you aren't caring for kids, but you're caring for parents, aging parents in this season of life. Some of you are working on a master's degree while you're working full time. And therefore, because of that, you are limited. There's only so much that you can do, right? We all have limitations. And the point I just want to make is whether it's physical, emotional, social, or economic, right? Like no matter who you are or where you come from, there are things in your life that, that, that create limitations. And one of the greatest limitations that we all share today, you know what it is? It's time. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but whether you are dirt poor or filthy rich like Bill Gates, we all have the same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day and there's nothing. It's like time's the one thing you can't buy more of, right? We all have 24 hours. And what we have to get there for, listen, is we all have limitations. And what we see from this story is one of Satan's greatest tactics, one of his greatest strategies in order to try to kill, steal, and destroy you is to get you to transgress those limitations. That's what we see in the story, isn't it? Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, they're placed in the garden. There are so many yeses. There's just one no. And what is the one thing Satan goes after? The one no. And how does he tempt them? He said, did God say you should eat of that tree? And she says, yeah, God says if we eat of it, we'll die. He goes, you won't die. God knows when you eat, what's going to happen? You'll become like him, meaning you'll be able to live without limitations. That's how he tempts. And that's the same way that he's tempting you and me today. It's this idea, guys, that is running through our culture and is now permeating the church that you need to do whatever you want to do. As long as you're not hurting anybody. Sleep with whoever you want. Watch whatever you want. Work as many hours as you want. Just do you. And underneath this is this story that says you're the ultimate authority of your life. You're God. Like, just do you and you will be happy. And though that sounds good, what do we see happens as a result? It does not bring about a life of delight, but it brings about death. And therefore, the question we have to try to answer this morning is how can we avoid the same tragedy as Adam and Eve? How do we go from living lives where we feel enslaved to anxiety and depression and burnout to instead live as resilient disciples of Jesus who are filled with joy and gratitude and peace no matter what is going on around us? And in short, the way that we live this life is by adopting the practice of simplicity, which is a practice, if you read the Gospels, that comes straight from the life and the teachings of Jesus that is all about a disciplined pursuit of less. And on the one hand, what you need to understand on one level, um, this idea of simplicity, or as it's called in the secular world, essentialism or minimalism, it is about learning to live with less stuff. And this is important for us. Um, there is a message right now in the world that says the more you have, 
the happier you will be. And this is a lie, guys, that we as a church are buying into hook, line, and sinker. Um, just look at some of these statistics I think we can throw on the screen for you. The average American home has over 300,000 items in it. We consume twice as many material goods as the average home did 50 years ago. And the average home has tripled in size in that same time frame. Yet, despite the fact our houses over the last 50 years have tripled in size, look at this. 25% of people with a two-car garage can't park either of their cars in the garage because of so much clutter. Okay, uh, Go to the next uh, one. Another 32% can only park one car in the garage because of so much clutter. And because we have so much stuff, right, like the storage unit business is booming right now. Look at this. There is, if you average it out, 7.3 square feet of storage unit space for every American. Do you know what that means? That means we could sleep our entire nation in storage units. But that's amazing. Um, on top of that, we know that the average American has $15,000 of credit card debt. This is why, in the words of Steve Howard, who's an executive at Ikea, he says that we have in the West now reached peak stuff. Peak stuff. And it's important to note that despite all of our materialism, are we any happier? Well, according to all the research, from whichever study you want to read, the answer to that is no. In fact, according to research after research, happiness and well-being have been on decline since 1952 in our country. This is why, in the words of the great theologian, the notorious B.I.G., right, more money, more problems. So on one level, simplicity really is about learning how to live with less stuff. But please get this. More than that, more than that, simplicity is not just about money and possessions, it's about all of life. This is not a sermon that's just about your budget. It is also about your schedule. It's about your hobbies, it's about your travel, it's about your workload, it's about digital distraction and all of the stuff that we feel our time with. And so with that said, I think a good definition of simplicity is this. Um, to practice a life of simplicity is to limit the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations so that we can reorder our lives around what matters most. Or if you want a more simple definition of simplicity in the words of Jesus, it is simply this, to seek first the kingdom of God. Listen to how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. I'll put it on the screen for you. But in Matthew 6, Jesus says the following in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Like, that's been a very sobering word for me this week. Like, literally, Jesus is saying, you've got to make a choice here. You literally can't do both. You, you, you can't do both. You want to serve me, or do you want to serve money? Here's what he says. If you will serve me, look at verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. The word for worry there literally means to be torn apart. And is that not what anxiety does to you? It tears you apart. It's almost frustrating to me that Jesus actually assumes that as a disciple of Jesus, you won't worry. Think about that. Like Jesus actually expects that if you're going to be a resilient disciple, that you will live a life free from anxiety. Command, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or what uh, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And look at verse 31. He says it again. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Look at this, verse 32. 
For the pagans run after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Notice the, the, the choice of words here that Jesus uses. He says that pagans, they don't walk after these things. They don't hike after these things. They run after these things. In other words, what Jesus is saying, listen, please hear me, guys. If you want to live, or here's, let me just say this. One way you can know that you value what pagans do is you live a life of hurry and anxiety. Like that's what Jesus is saying. That's a pretty arresting statement. He says, when you live as the pagans, you run after all these things. You begin to say, I'm going to serve money or I'm going to serve career or pleasure or whatever it may be. And as a result, Jesus says, you will begin to live a life with no margin and lots of anxiety. And therefore, in verse 33, he says this, instead of living that way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Translation, here's what Jesus just said. You want to live a life free from anxiety? You want to live a life free from burnout and depression and all of these things? Jesus says, here is a solution. You reorient all of your life, your budget, your schedule, your hobbies, everything all around me. And ultimately, guys, like, listen, please hear me. This just gets back to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If you remember from week one, we said, in, a, in our culture, we think you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. That is a foreign idea. The word Christian is used twice in the New Testament and only in a derogatory sense from people outside the church making fun of people inside. Right? Disciple is used over and over and over and over again. And disciple, what we said in week one, and I'll say it again, is to reorient your life around three goals. It's goal number one, to be with Jesus. Goal number two, as a result, is to become like Jesus. And then goal number three, guys, is actually to do the things that Jesus did. And according to the great Dallas Willard, this is the secret to being a resilient disciple. This is the secret to experiencing the contentment and the joy that you are longing for. Guys, please hear me. Some of you, you're hearing the words come out of my mouth every week, and it is not settling into your heart. It's not being applied, and that's why you think what I'm saying is not even legit. Have you ever been in a service and you hear someone else preach and teach something and you're like, yeah, 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 but you don't. You're like, I don't really know if that's true. I know I have, and I think a lot of times it's because there's a disconnect between hearing it and agreeing with it here and then actually putting it into practice and living it out. And what Dallas Willard says has been like, this is the key to really experiencing the power in the Christian life. And I think we have this quote, we'll put it on the screen. He says this, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his work, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies and going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently, and hopefully, cliffhanger, while living the rest of our lives just like everyone else does around us. This is a strategy that Willard says that is bound to fail. Put it another way, you will never experience the life of Jesus if you do not adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And the lifestyle of Jesus, please hear me, guys, it is a simplistic life. It is a life with a disciplined pursuit of the kingdom of God. I know that what I'm saying this morning is not easy to hear. To be honest, I wasn't. There's some messages I look forward to hearing. I call them come and live messages, and there's others that are go and die messages. 
And I know that as I say this, this feels somewhat to some of you maybe like a go and die message. A life of simplicity is anything but simple in a culture like ours. But I feel I feel a I feel so much passion around this, guys, because I really believe like this is the life you were created for. And because, and this is my fault, because we don't talk about this kind of stuff more than we do, I think it's real easy to think like this is an optional message where it's like, I can take all this other stuff in the Bible and do it and live like everybody else in the world. And you cannot possibly do that. You cannot possibly do that. I know that, um, I know that this is a life that we're created for. I know it's a life that we need. And I even believe it's a life that every single person in here wants. Like I look around at at the parents in the room and I know you love your kids. I know you do. And I know you want your kids to flourish and you want them to thrive. I mean, you realize our kids are going to face stuff just like the generations before us, but our kids are going to face stuff we never had to face. Never had to face. And I know, like, I know you guys, like, you totally love your kids and you want to disciple them and you want to see them grow and you want to see them prosper. But here's the thing. If you are going to parent well, you're going to have to embrace limitations. Like, some of you, if you're like me, like, you're haunted by the question. When you put your kids down at bed, I'm sometimes haunted by this question. Was I a good parent today? Anybody else here ever ask themselves that question? Like, was I a good parent today? Was I present with my kids? Or is it possible that I was... Once again, like so anxious and so distracted and so driven to performance and I've got to do more and more and more and more that once again, I missed the thing that mattered most, which was connecting to the heart of my child. It's just something that haunts me. And listen, guys, again, like if we're going to be the parents God's called us to be, we've got to learn to slow down. We have to learn how to live this life of simplicity, a life with margin, which means, listen to me, you're going to have to learn to say no to good stuff. To good stuff. Like, I've been following Jesus long enough now. Let me tell you, I'm not tempted to do a lot of the big, bad stuff. I'm really not. Somebody, if I walk out the door right now and someone's like, hey, man, you want some black tar heroin? Right? Like, I'm not going to be tempted to. By God's grace, He's freed me from the temptation of pornography, or at least of looking at pornography. I mean, a lot of these big sins, right? Like, I'm just not. I'm not giving to that, but you know what I am giving? The temptation I am is just to say yes to a whole bunch of good stuff and therefore become overwhelmed. Some of you in here, I know you say you want to follow Jesus, but you have a foot in both camps right now. You have a foot in the world, and I don't mean you're doing drugs. I just mean you're living in a way that's incompatible with the kingdom of God. You're living like probably a good Christian is supposed to live, is what we've been told, right? But you've got one foot in the world, and you've got one foot in the way of Jesus. Some of you, like, maybe you're here and you're like, man, I totally want to read the Bible and I totally want to pray, but I also really want to check my Facebook. All right? I get it. Like, dude, like, I totally want to be in deep community and I want to live on mission, but I also want to be able to travel and do whatever I want whenever I want. Or, man, like, I, I totally, Jared, want to seek first the kingdom of God, but I also want to build my kingdom. And, and then you, as a result, you look and you say, like, man, there's just not enough time in a day to do what Jesus has asked me to do. And here's the good news. You ready for this? The good news is this. You will always have enough time to do exactly what Jesus has called you to do. But you know what the bad news is? You will never have enough time to do what Jesus has asked you to do and what the world has asked you to do. You will never have enough time. So you've got to ask yourself this morning, which camp do I want to live in? Where do I want my foot? Jesus, listen, guys, you are important. I'm important, but we are not as important as Jesus. 
Do you ever think about that? Jesus is the most important human being who ever lived. He always had one more person to teach, one more person to heal, and yet he learned how to say no. He learned how to say no. He lived with limitations because he did not need the approval of other people. Because he did not need you to be okay with me for me to be okay. He knew how to live in his limitations. And there's the reality. If we're going to be resilient disciples, the same has to be true of us. And so with all that said, on a practical level, what does this mean? Well, I would say before I end, um, the first thing is this. If you truly want to be a resilient disciple, you're going to have to stop and, and do an honest assessment of your life. And what that means is I would encourage you, if you really want to go after this, is look at your budget and look at your schedule. And based off of how you spend your time and your money, ask yourself, what does this really... If a stranger walked up and they saw how you spend your time and your money, what would they conclude you value the most? And ask yourself, does this value line up with the values of the kingdom of God? Start there. Secondly, what I would say is I would encourage you to do a life map if you have never done this. Um, and a life map is simply, it's, it's you taking the top eight priorities in your life and putting it in the order you know they should be in. And so I think I can put this on the screen for you. Um, this is one that I've made. And you can see I put God at the top. This is, again, when everything is as it should be. It's not always in this order. But when life is working, that's the order it should be in for me. God is at the top. I put self second. And the reason I put self second is because I cannot pour from an empty cup. If I'm not in a good place, I can't help you be in a good place. If I'm not personally pursuing Jesus, there's no way I can help my wife and my kids and others pursue Jesus. Third is my wife. Fourth is my kids. Five is my job. That's a pastor. So my job. Uh, six is to be a good friend. And I don't want to just have a thousand one inch deep relationships. Like I'm really looking for a handful of people that I can go deep with. Um, Outside of that, seven is to care for the poor. Did you know there's over 2,000 verses in the Bible on caring for the poor? At one point, Jesus even says, how do you know the difference between a true Christian and one who just pretends to be a Christian? It's how they care for the poor. And then eight is the broader church. God has given me influence to where I get to coach other church planners and pastors across the world. And so I want to use that time to try to invest in people in different countries and different parts of even our country. And so here's the thing. Those are the top priorities as they should be. I would encourage you to list those for yourself and then do this. And this is going to take some time, which I know immediately, like, again, you're going to have to free up space just to even do, do, do what I'm talking about today. Write out for each one of these categories your envisioned future. In other words, when everything is as it should be, this is what my relationship with God would look like. This is what I would look like. And so I think I have an example. Do I have an example of that? Did I send it where it's like under self? Is that on there? Yeah. So here's one I wrote for myself. When everything is as it should be, I'm growing in my enjoyment of God as I feel his enjoyment of me. I'm producing the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're around me, you would feel love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, I'm physically, emotionally, and relationally healthy. I'm rested. I'm flexible. I take risks. I know how to lament and to laugh. So write that out for each category. And then here's where it gets a little bit sobering. Then take time and write out your current reality. Where am I actually at? And then, and this is, again, this is going to be hard work, but begin to ask yourself, how do I close the gap between the envisioned future and my current reality? And here's my guess. My guess is if you guys will actually begin to do this, you're going to have to make some edits in your life. There are some things that you will have to remove. For some of you, that's going to mean you got to cancel the membership. For some of you, that means you're going to need to downsize your home or delete apps or sell a car or clean out your closet. I mean, the list could go on and on. 
And then what I would just say is this, because the life of simplicity is not just about removing stuff, but it's really about making space so you can experience more of God and what truly He values. I would encourage you to engage in just these three spiritual disciplines, just three, um, and try this over the next six months and see what happens. But these are three spiritual disciplines from the life and teaching of Jesus that helps you practice simplicity, to, to create space to experience more of God. And I would encourage you to practice silence and solitude once a day, to practice Sabbath once a week, I should say once a week, not once a month, and then uh, to practice fasting once a month. Silence and solitude, in case this is unfamiliar to you, it just simply looks like this. It's a spend time, I would encourage you to do it in the mornings, but you can do it in lunch, evening, whatever, where you just turn off the noise, you turn off the notifications, you turn off the music, you turn off all of that, and you just learn to be in the presence of God. Like, are you aware right now that you're in the presence of God? You feel His presence? My guess is, and this is not to shame you, most of you would say no. And it's not because God is not here. It's because we have not learned how to be here with Him. And silence and solitude is a daily practice of learning how to do this, to talk to God and to listen back to God. Scripture and prayer. Once a week, I would encourage you to Sabbath. This is a 24-hour period. Every week, Jesus himself practices this where you just say, I'm not doing any work. I'm not responding to my emails. I'm not doing anything to try to improve my life. I'm not going into the office. I'm just going to rest. I'm going to enjoy my family. I'm going to enjoy God as creation. Third, I would encourage you once a month to fast. Fasting is intentionally about starving your flesh so that you can feed on the Spirit. It's about creating space where you can experience more of God. These are practices that do not help you to earn God's love. They just open you up to experience more of His love. To close, I want to say this, and this is very important before we end. Um, I do not have this down. Like, this is not a sermon where I'm like, man, I wish you people could all get on board with me. You know, like, catch up to me on this. Um, on one level, I am all about a life of simplicity. <clears throat> I drive a 2010 pickup truck. You know, I mean, I live in a pretty modest house in Carriage Hills. I don't have a lot of clothes in my closet. Um, I don't have a lot of hobbies that take up a lot of time throughout my week and pull me away from other things. And so on one level, like I'm all about this. And I feel good about it. But on another level, I tend to be a workaholic and I tend to be a perfectionist. And even though I'm home, sometimes I'm not really home. Does that make sense? Like I'm there, but I'm not really there. I'm thinking about like all the other stuff that has to be done in the church or around or whatever. And therefore I'm anxious and I get frustrated. And my wife's like, hey, can you pass a salt? And I'm like, I don't have time to pass a salt, right? Or whatever else. It's like I can be irritable. And so it's like this one part of me, it's like I am not there at all. And I just want you to know like if that's where you are today, like the invitation from Jesus, he doesn't want you to leave here in shame or to condemn yourself. The invitation, just pay attention to what's in your heart this morning. Would you just do that? Just pay attention to what is in your heart. In the words of John Ortberg, hurry isn't simply a sign of a disordered schedule. It's the sign of a disordered heart. Meaning a life without margin is more than just, I've got a schedule out of whack. It's a heart that has gone awry and you have begun to in some way seek something first rather than the kingdom of God. And again, if that's where you are, the invitation is just pay attention to that. Just pay attention. Jesus is lovingly asking you to reorder all of your life around him. Guys, in a culture of excess and overload, I don't know of a practice that can save your life quicker than this one. I really don't. 
And so the invitation from Jesus is pay attention to begin to reorder your life around him and allow him to free you from the slavery of those disordered desires so you can experience the peace and the rest and the joy and the life that you're longing for in Jesus. That said, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. The band's going to come forward. We'll sing one more song together, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for uh, everyone who is here today. Thank you for the men, the women, the children. Um, I thank you for those signs of life. I thank you so much, Jesus, that you are patient with us. You are compassionate towards us. I pray that uh, nobody here today would leave, um, ultimately just feeling condemned or too beat up, that they would see this as an invitation to experience more life in you. We need to learn how to be still. And so I just pray that, Jesus, you would teach us how to walk, how to experience what you call the easy yoke, uh, to experience the rest that we all long for. And as a result, God, that we would establish deep, deep, deep roots that allow us to be a people that produce fruit that is so beautiful and abundant that we and those around us can taste and see how good you really are. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. <laughs>